This is Just a Few Questions. I'm Mark Sims. My guest is Andrew Papachristos. Andrew Papachristos is professor of psychology and the director of Northwestern University Neighborhood and Network Initiative. How are you, Professor Papachristos? Good morning. Thanks for having me, Mark. I'm so I'm so happy that you're here. We're going to get right into it. Um, uh, professor, what is the Neighborhood and Network Initiative? Yeah, the Northwestern Neighborhood and Network Initiative, uh, N3, is a research initiative here at Northwestern that tries to uh, work with community organizations, civic partners, to try to answer some tough questions. And we partner with organizations from you know building the research questions, building the research design, collecting the data, analyzing the data, and hopefully providing something back to policymakers and the folks that are doing the work on the ground. We focus a lot on public safety, uh, gun violence, police violence, uh, community safety overall. So we've been around for about four years. Well, I live on the far south side of Chicago all my life, so I'm surrounded by violence and crime. <laughs> you know, the neighborhood's fine. You, you don't see it. You, ever, you don't really see the crime a lot, but it's always, if you look at the police blotter or, blotter or listen to the police scanner, you're afraid to come out of the damn house. Is that serious? So uh, the other person asked, uh, Professor, I know this is a broad question. But I got to ask. I know you're you're a you're a professor, not an activist. I get it, but here's a question: Do you think it's yep. possible to create crime-free, low-income neighborhoods like here in the far south side of Chicago? What a great question, Mark. It's a complicated question, so I'm going to give you the professor answer. But I, I, I'm trying not to talk too long. You know, we like to talk a little bit. So the relationship between poverty and crime is really tricky. Right. One, what type of crime are we talking about? Are we talking about violent crime? Are we talking about property crime? Are we talking about white collar crime? We saw, for example, as a lot of folks now recognize the racial disparities that were involved, you know, in the crack cocaine epidemic in the 80s and 90s. And race and place are, are synonymous in this country. So full stop. It's a complicated relationship. It is absolutely possible to have communities that have high levels of individuals living in poverty. Uh, so long as the community itself has, is, itself is not locked up or disenfranchised, right? So most poor people don't rob anybody. Most poor people don't commit homicide. Most poor people don't shoot anybody. What happens is poverty creates a stage which, where violence or certain types of crime become a, a, a way to survive, a way to get by. And that is especially acute in communities that don't have functioning schools or grocery stores or access to health or legal services. And so, you know, you can have poor folks in a community, if the community has resources, the community can do well. But if the community is, is deprived of resources, if it's disinvested in, you have all sorts of problems. And the important thing there I want to stress, Mark, is, you know, we America likes to focus on individuals, right? We're, we talk about individual success, individual failures. When we're talking about crime, when we're talking about violence, we need to start talking about neighborhood, neighborhood science. This is what our, our initiative is about. But we need solutions that help uplift entire communities, not just individuals who are engaged in violent or criminal behavior. And they exist, but they're a small proportion of any community. Most communities, you know, are, 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 are consistent of individuals who are trying to make it, who are trying to do what they got to do. They look out for each other, and they look out for each other in ways, you know, that is supportive, but sometimes can lead to crime. So if we support communities, we can get there. But that's going to take centuries, you know, decades. It took us centuries to create the city maps that we see. And groups turn over and individuals turn over, but communities still continue to suffer. And so until we start really focusing on neighborhoods as the unit of intervention, we're going to continue to struggle. I think we can do it, or at least I think we can push it in the right direction. Yeah, before I go on this third question about network science, you can explain all that to me. 
I, I have a theory. See, I'm not a professor at Northwestern University, <laughs> and <laughs> but I went to. But you know, I, I grew up here in Chicago. So, and I and my children went to the Chicago public schools, right? Uh, it's always, uh, you know, you've seen this, and no matter where people live, you've seen this. It's always that one or two th- children in the in public school, in a school, or, or that house, or two, a couple of neighbors on that block that destabilize that whole block, that whole classroom, or maybe that whole school. So how you think it's possible, before I go to my third question, you think it's possible to really target the resources? Because I know the world is, d- does the Matthew effect, right? We always give the resources and the praise and everything to the outliers, the successful people. But that those yeah. weak chains, those weak links in the chain, the weak links in the chain, that disruptive student, that disruptive home in that neighborhood, we know what they do. We know what they are. We've seen the statistics. They don't come to school. They got disabled. So we know all of that. How do we help that child not become a neighborhood criminal? Yeah, Mark, that's such a great question. You're also setting me up for my network view of the world. But, but let, let me just say one thing where that's concerned, which is, and I believe this is true for activists as much as it is for policymakers and researchers. If we keep pitting individual immediate solutions versus deeper structural solutions and we make it a trade-off, we're going to lose. Because the truth is we have to address folks who are in harm's way, who are experiencing trauma at the same time we do all this big stuff. Right? And what, what's a neighborhood, man? Neighborhood is a, is a, a, a mesh, a complex system of families, neighbors, teachers, preachers, workers, employees, students, right? And they're all woven together. And in neighborhoods, regardless whether, you know, you have, have a lot of resources or not, neighborhoods that are able to, to activate that network to solve problems, to reduce violence, to get a school open, to keep a library with books in it, communities that can do that are going to feel safer and are going to be safer. And there are challenges to that, and resources are one of them. Let's not let's not joke each other here, right? Like, if you can't keep your grocery store open, if you can't have your park open, if you can't have your fire department with a fire truck, your neighborhood's not going to be as safe. So there's some of that happens outside. So one of the things that we need to focus on is we need to focus on folks that you know might be getting into trouble, might be having, might be struggling, but at the same time, we need to make sure that the community as a whole can do that because most violence, I focus on violence, right? Most violence doesn't get solved by the police. Most community safety happens because neighbors look out for each other, right? And in some communities, they've been so, you know, abused by the police over the years, they're, they're going to solve things more by themselves than calling the police, right? You have to have that sort of uh, a balance. You have to kind of recalibrate the system. Sometimes the family struggles. Sometimes the family's abusive. What does the community do to help save their children? And that, that's an age-old question in sociology, right? Um, and, I, and I think that that's really key. We can't make trade-offs between helping some single kid or single family today and helping a neighborhood. We gotta do both. We do that in medicine, by the way, right? We got primary, you know, triage. Somebody gets, has a heart attack, they go to the emergency room, we save their life. Hopefully, that person has access to a primary care physician, and hopefully, their kids are getting good meals in schools. All of that is about health. We don't have that where crime or violence is concerned. We're trying to build that in some instances right now, and we're trying to build that during a national uptick in, in gun violence. It's a struggle. Um, before I go in this podcast, talking about the African-American community, because that's what I'm familiar with, and most of the uh, victims of murder in this county, Cook County, and the city of Chicago are African-American. I get, so here's that third question I had to run into. Here it is. What is yeah. network science, and can network science help change a person's behavior? Yeah. Um, you know, changing people's behavior is a, is a tricky, tricky thing, whether we're talking about 
you know, you change it through so religion or science or interventions. Here's what network science tells us. You actually already alluded to it. In, in any neighborhood in this country, right, in any neighborhood, the, there's a small number of people who are engaging in violence. It's not the whole neighborhood. So the important thing there is we don't want to criminalize entire neighborhoods or entire people or entire groups, right? The point is there are some individuals who are involved in, in say, gun violence, which is what I know. It is entirely possible to reach those people, right? In Chicago and in other cities we've studied, and we've studied about a dozen or so in this country, less than 2 or 3% of a neighborhood's population is involved in gun violence. And by this, I mean, you know, potential suspect or victim. It impacts the entire community, but it's a small number of people who are involved in these disputes that, that lead to shootings. And so part of what we need to do today is focus our resources on those people who are hurt, who are themselves victims, who have children, who are neighbors, brothers, sisters, cousins, uncles, students, employees, right? Like they are part of the neighborhood. We need to reach them today to save their life. But we also got to save their kids' lives. We also got to think about their family and their access to medicine and legal services and food and schools. And so what networks can help us do, understanding these patterns, understanding how these shootings go back 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, same block, same group, same family, we do need to have an intervention there. And it should be focusing on getting people not shot, saving their lives. And that's a complex question because some people need one thing, other people need another thing. And I know you mentioned the black community in Chicago, the Latino community also suffers tremendously. They need something potentially slightly different depending on wh what neighborhood they're in and what they have access to. So I think what the, the network is more on the triage side how can we get resources to people who are hurting today to stop tomorrow's shooting and reduce some, not all, but some of the immediate trauma? You might open away historical trauma, right? But if we can stop one person from getting shot, that's some little less trauma for them, their family, their kids, their friends. And that's, that's part of the goal of understanding the way these individuals are connected to each other and the disputes they're involved in. My big thing about the African-American community, I gripe, I gripe on the show, on my podcast a lot, is the distrust we have for each other. I know a professor like you can't talk about that because it's, it's messy, it's ugly, <clears throat> and people may get upset. But we do have resources, some of the, the poorest neighborhoods. You can go, go through Roseland. Let's pick Roseland. I mean, not pick on Roseland. Pick Roseland or uh, Inglewood. Yeah, yeah. There are resources there. There are libraries there. There are, there are resources there. But my big thing is that we lack the trust. If I roll through, I'm, I would be, you see my paycheck, I'm considered a poor person, okay? But I do have some other resources. We can talk about that off the air. But the point is that if I roll through the neighborhood, there is, who is Mark Sims or Andrew Papacristos? Can I trust that guy? Is that young man over there my opposition? So we have a, we have a trust factor that other ethnic groups do not have because of our legacy of slavery we're still still sort of working on so it's really a trust factor and it's a class factor so if i come in with my pseudo bougie uh, analysis of what we need to do people say negro get out of here i mean now you can't really talk about that per se but you understand let's say let's see evanston there are black folks in evanston some have money and some are working class the crime is not as bad there as you know south side chicago we understand that but I still believe that how do we as African-Americans, if you will, and we may need help from from allies outside of our neighborhood because they have resources to build the trust with each other to say, OK, 
uh, you're not my opposition. You're not trying to defeat me. You're not trying to stop my way of living, but you're here to help. And it's hard because when you make suggestions for people, including me, when you make suggestions, people say your suggestion is, uh, is uh, imply criticism. You're here to criticize me. So some people can't say, I'm here to help you, but you, you sound like you're criticizing me. I'm here to help you. I'm not criticizing you. And so how do we work that out where it goes down, like I said, to that young man in eighth grade or fifth grade or third grade so they don't go down? I know you work on the here now, and I'm the kind of person that's work on, on some of this prevention. How do we marry that here and now and the prevention we need to do so we won't, we won't be talking about this 10 and 20 years from now? Yeah, what a great set of questions. There's some stuff I know about. There's obviously some stuff I don't know about what you're saying. You know, by the way, I want to come back to trust in the state in a minute. Um, but, but when you're talking about trust within any community, right, I think, you know, you're right with some of the historical elements in the black community. But, you know, what's happened in cities like Chicago where neighborhoods, there are resources, but they are resource scarce. That creates competition, right? People competing with each other within the same community. When you talk about violence prevention. For decades, organizations fighting with each other for the same nickel, right? Well, we got to do it this way. And then all of a sudden they dig in. Some people say it's about religion. Some people say it's about education or behavioral change or this or that. And it creates conflict among, among groups, right? And that's a, you know, that's part of the strategy that this country has used to pit, you know, blacks against blacks and whites against blacks, especially when you talk about class. Right. This is the Southern strategy back to Nixon's day. Right. Like, how are we going to get working cast and poor whites, you know, with other whites? Right. You know, we saw this with white folks and Trump. Why are white folks whose interests are working against themselves siding with Trump? Right. So this country has a, has a history of race and class baiting and creating conflict among organizations. So everything you said resonates. But one of the things we need to do, and I, I think we're seeing this in Chicago and some communities, is trying to foster collaboration where it is. Right. And some folks are going to need and I'm, I'm using religion as an example, because some of the violence prevention space, some of these organizations are highly religious. Others are secular. Some are Christian. Some are Muslim. Right. Great. But they can coordinate resources rather than fight with each other. And I think that's a, that's a trick. And that's, again, historically in this country, it's a tricky, a tricky matter, because historically in this country, it creates more conflict rather rather than unity. I want to say 20 seconds on, on trust in the state. Historically in this country, when we go back as, as far back as we actually have data. Records in, in homicide always go up when young men are, are feeling like the state doesn't get them, has abandoned them, has harmed them. This goes back to the, the civil, civil War. This goes back to Prohibition. This goes back to the 1960s. This goes back to the 1980s. So when people think the state will not protect them, they arm themselves and they protect themselves. And they avoid the state. They're cynical from the state. They're estranged from the state. And with really good cause in some instances, right? But that's another level of trust. So there are some folks that not only can't trust each other, they don't trust the state, right? So there's no, there's, who do they trust but themselves? And as that circle gets smaller and smaller and smaller, I just trust myself and I trust my guys from my block. Because those guys I know got my block, right? They, they, in reality, they structure my life more ways than anybody else, right? And I think that's very true. And, and that's something in this country we're experiencing right now on the on the you know white extremist as well. They're storming the they're storming the nation's capital. They're storming the capital of Michigan armed because they don't feel like the government protects their interests. But in black communities and Latino communities, that's especially acute because of the history of police abuse in this country, police violence in this country, and just general neglect from the state, right, on all the things we're talking about. Professor Papa Christos, uh, can you come back at sometime this year before the year's out? Can you come back and join me on the podcast? 
Yeah, of course, of course, Mark. You, I love these questions. Man, you, I, I mean, appreciate what you're doing. And I, I, I could talk for hours with you, but I can't. The show is over. But uh, can you leave us with a little wisdom or a little hope of what can we do today, if you will, or this week, this month, to reduce this violent crime in Chicago and other places, too? Other cities, other people live in other cities, other places, too. Yeah, well, the first thing I would say is pay attention, right? And I know everybody is right now because of the Supreme Court ruling. But here's the thing about violence prevention in the city and in this country, it is a grind. And I wanna take my hats off to every single one of the folks in this city who goes out there every day. Here I'm talking about violence prevention workers, victim specialists, trauma response. Take, you know, take my hat off them because it is a grind. No matter what happened this weekend in Highland Park, no, what ha- no matter what happened in Parkway Gardens with that mass shooting and the other 10 people who were killed, they get up every day to try to reach folks and do it. We need that. We need more of that. The other thing I want to say is important as we're paying attention is we have to build a violence prevention infrastructure in this country that is robust and not subject to a single administration, right? We have to train professionals. We have to hire people from communities who know communities to do the work, give them the career path, give them support to succeed. We just can't throw a bunch of money at groups and say, go fix violence, right? That's setting them up to fail. That's setting black and Latino organizations up to fail. And we do not want that. What we want is to build an infrastructure on the ground. And I think, you know, in terms of things that are, are, are looking good, it's hard to do that on July 5th uh, in Chicagoland after the weekend we just had. But, you know, we're seeing gains. We're seeing gains in some of the, the places that we're working with. We're seeing violence prevention organizations that their neighborhoods would have been worse off had they not been here since 2020, 2018, 2017. And that's a good news, right? There are some good news in there. There are people who are alive today because of those organizations and we don't celebrate that enough so you know let's make sure to look out for each other you know as we're doing this work and let's pay attention uh, and let's vote and let's make sure we we kind of keep our 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 folks that are doing the work supported and feeling loved